1: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Today, we're showing South Carolina a little bit of love, which we don't do as often as we should, you know, as often as we'd like. Uh, Today, we're talking to Mr. Mark Haslam. Mark, how are you doing? I'm doing great, gentlemen.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the invite.
1: Yeah, glad to have you, Jacob. How are you doing over here? Uh, Doing well, doing
0: well. Uh, Mark, this has been uh, kind of a long time coming, because I think we originally talked about doing this episode, I think it was last year, it was at least last year, maybe even two years ago I don't know, i've been kind of kicking around trying to get you on talking you know velvet hunting um and just y'all's crazy season y'all have especially in your part of south carolina there's the opportunities that rise starting in, in mid-august uh, but the the thing about you i've mm-hmm. kind of been following you for a couple of years now is your consistency of success on your farms um just killing really really nice bucks really good bucks um throughout the season and that's something that i really want to kind of talk about because again south carolina is such an interesting state we actually get Quite a few listeners all the time ask us, man, I would love for y'all to come hunt South Carolina. And, you know, we've looked around some different pieces of uh, public land down there, and it's like the seasons are just crazy. Uh, and also, with it being a, I guess it's called Blue Law State or the whole situation where yeah. you can only hunt public land on, you know, um, Saturdays. Saturdays can't hunt on Sundays until I think this year they open up a few different ones. It's been interesting. Yeah. But I want to talk to you about some of your farms and how you hunt them because the interesting thing about you is kind of that success that you've had throughout the whole season and how you use the timing of different parts of the season of when you'll target some of these bucks on these farms. So, um, Mark, to give us a little bit of background, talk to us a little bit about your background when it comes to whitetail hunting in South Carolina and also just your daily, uh, I guess, um, uh, operation when it comes to your thought process of hunting South Carolina and how you prep these farms to be able to hunt them very effectively come this season.
2: Well, That's a lot to dive into. Um, you know, how I got, uh, as far as my background hunting in South Carolina, this is really all I've hunted. Um, even though, you know, I live in Savannah, uh, Georgia. Savannah's right there on the border, of Georgia, South Carolina. Um, I grew up in a hunting club for pretty much kindergarten through way out of college um, in low country, South Carolina, Jasper County. So I grew up hunting swamps. Uh, pine plantations and you know properties that had that mix of a tree farm pine farm and you know wetlands bottomlands swamps everything like that so um my fascination and just love for that um for the swamps came in early age and as far as working our farm up here we've had this since 2006 so it's been a It's been a long time coming, you know, um, a long, slow kind of build. We basically kind of took it slow over time just because this was the first property that we were uh, working. But really, once we really got into the forestry work, cutting trees, um, working the land, that's when things really started to click with me as far as how to hunt the deer better
0: yeah absolutely it's like you know it's not just you're out there during deer season you're out there doing stuff at all times of the year in order to prep for you know better habitat not just for deer but turkey and quail and everything else as well so um Real quick, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your background, kind of growing up in, in whitetail hunting. Mm-hmm. So your background is very similar to a lot of our other listeners. You know, kind of grew up, you know, hunting hunting clubs and those leases and stuff like that. And especially your area of the country, dealing with a lot of pines and kind of those, some of those swamps and everything. That's extremely relatable to a lot of our audience. What lessons did you learn early on? Um, and and maybe especially when you get to high school and college and everything was there any like valuable lessons that you learned as a young whitetail hunter that's kind of transitioned to what you do now anything that was extremely impactful for you that you might learn from a mentor or anything like that hunting those kind of areas
2: you know yeah I mean the first thing that comes to mind is hunting you know being in a hunt club I mean if if anyone's listened that is in a hunt club now or has been um, you first it's like you're you're hunting the the game species, but then you're also there's an extra layer of the other members, not there necessarily getting in your way, but you know, you're trying to you think you want to hunt in, in in one area. And back in the day, we had like a little clipboard, a sign-in board. Nowadays people have different apps that you can sign on, but you had an idea about where you wanted to hunt, maybe based on when or whatever. And then you get there and someone hunted that area um, you know, a day or two prior. So there's that extra level um, of doing things I you know, early on, I, I would say that I, you know, South Carolina, you've always been able, at least my life, bait, put out corn, put out feeders. And so that can be very effective. And I think everybody, anybody listening knows someone that's killed a big giant buck on a corn pile and they probably had no history of it. They probably couldn't say, you know, where that buck came from, but they killed it. And it, it, it works, but it's not foolproof. And, you know, when you're running surveys and you're really trying to hunt them, it's it's not, that's something I could definitely say I learned at an early age. It's like when you're trying to shift a mature buck off their pattern, off what they're going to do and want to do, they'll eat the corn, but it's not an end all be all. So, and that kind of goes into, you know, how, how I develop that kind of next stage as a hunter.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Learning their
2: behavior and how they move. Yeah, absolutely, and that's
0: kind of funny. Like, uh, you know, South Carolina—it always seems in Georgia too, like such a long history of baiting, you know, being legal and everything. We're like Alabama up until, you know, probably god what is it, it was five or six years ago, yeah it, it became where you could actually hunt over bait for a while they had that little you know probably like it's got to be a
1: hundred yards away and out of line of sight people would put it behind a hay bale or something <laughs> yeah. like just crazy yeah. stuff but
0: but it's it's been interesting because like when you go to places place like what you're talking about where the deer at, over generations have you know especially in high pressure clubs especially some of those mature bucks It seems to associate that bait with human presence. And again, you know, like you said, there's always guys that are successful doing it. But there's a lot of guys that seem they don't have success hunting over those areas. It's it's fascinating when you, can you go to a state like what you where you're from, where it's been done for so long. And I can just imagine how habitual those deer have gotten to that pressure being associated with that to the point that maybe it can backfire to you, especially on some of those more high pressure you know clubs and leases and even a private farm. But um, now I think that, that kind of uh, I guess that transition. After college and everything, what did you kind of do when it came to hunting? I mean, were you still kind of jumping around from clubs? Did you start buying some property or leasing some property? Or is that when y'all had the access to this farm or these farms that y'all have now?
2: Yeah, coming out of college, um, we were still in that hunt club. And so that land had changed a little bit. We still had our main clubhouse, um, but, but it was all leased land. So we had lost some land, got some different land. But it, that club was starting to dwindle a little bit. As far as the members and um, the amount of acres that we had to hunt, so right about that time was when we was when we purchased this th- this farm here. Okay, perfect.
0: Now, this is kind of all kind of plays out because with you now owning this property, you know, it's you, I'm guess, family and friends that kind of hunt it. Uh, so you have a, a really good understanding of who's out there and how you're going about doing your management strategy comp- compared to leasing some property, which is going to kind of play a factor a little bit in how you're able to hunt and, and kill bucks at different times of the season based off how the property hunts for different points of the season. Mm-hmm. Um Talk to us a little bit about how does the season in South Carolina, at least in the unit or the region that you're in, how does it set up to give listeners that aren't from South Carolina or don't live in South Carolina a better understanding of, of what does a typical hunting season look like from when it comes to gun hunting pressure and everything else?
2: Sure, yeah. So essentially the state is divided into four quadrants. Um uh, just like you would, if you just took South Carolina, you just cut it down the middle and cut it, you know, uh, horizontal, vert, vertical lines. That that that's how it's set up. Um, back in the day, they had like eleven different game zones, something like that. But I don't think most states have enough manpower to to uh, in, you know enforce that for the DNR. But um, the lower half, so game zones three and four, the season opens August fifteenth, and it's been August fifteenth, and I, all my life at least um and there's no early bow season so you can hunt you know any you know legal weapon crossbow archery rifle um august 15th and then so for the first month given uh it, the idea is to give the does a little bit more time with the fawns as far as you know nursing um winning them off so about sep- september 15th a lot of fawns are starting to lose their spots and they're becoming a little more stabilized where if you know they're you know, the mama doe was harvested, they'll be perfectly fine uh with that. And, you know, as far as the rifle season and as far as the corn, you know, I, I know that we talked about baiting a minute ago, but that does play into this is that I, I know that a lot of the Southern states get a bad rap for, you know, allowing bait, allowing corn and Georgia has opened things up, but there's a reason why, there's a reason why they do it, and there's a reason why our season is so long, and there's a reason why we can sh- hunt, hunt the rifle is because we have a in, in a, a very, um, very high density in South Carolina, always has been. That's part of the reason why the, you know, NDA, QDMA, and the different forms in the early years was started in South Carolina because of the deer numbers. So, um, it those tactics are in play so that people can kill the deer and try to you know balance balance the herd but as far as how the season plays out you know that first month you know the way i have always noticed it at least in my area is bucks right now they're in their summer pattern obviously on their summer schedule very very tight um home ranges not going too far and sometime around mid to late uh august they start to break up a little bit and they'll our bucks will start peeling velvet, usually that third week in August. The smaller bucks might hold them a little bit longer. Um, and some bucks will start to break up from the bachelor groups the first of September. Uh, some might stick, a, some might stay on, but once that velvet starts to peel, that testosterone starts to flare, they start making sign and then start gearing up for uh, the pre rut. And then you got a whole nother level of uh, deer behavior, deer movement.
0: Yeah, it's crazy to have the opportunity like y'all do of being able to still hunt kind of a summer pattern for that first week or so a season, week and a half a season, or maybe yeah. even almost getting to two weeks that you know you can really kind of capitalize on if you have a good pattern on, on you know your bachelor groups on a property uh, that you have access to. Which to me is just fascinating. Um, you know, other than like say. You know, South Florida, which, you know, they'll have a couple draw hunts that will happen, you know, in the next week or two, uh, kind of getting into, you know, late yeah. July, early August. You know, you guys, uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other whitetail opportunities that open that early, except for maybe going out west. Um, I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable opportunity. But the thing is, this is a question I've always had for guys that do this hunt, because I know guys that hunt South Carolina and they don't take part in that season. They'll wait until, you know, later September, October. They, they want a cool I, I front. Don't, yeah. So, how many people actually get out that you personally know, especially more than some of the casual hunters that get out that early part of the season when it's probably ninety plus degrees and just absolutely miserable?
2: It's from what I will always notice. It's the diehard hunters. I mean, if if someone's listening to this podcast, they're probably and they live in South Carolina, they're going to do it. Most guys, like what you said, they're waiting for that cold front, and it's like man, we're, we're not going to see a cold front until maybe mid-October. And, but it's going to be like two or three days of like cooler temps. It's not going to be cold. So, you know, it's when you talk to people about this kind of weather and hunting early, like in the Midwest or Northeast, they're not going to get it. And their deer are a lot different. But down here and where y'all are really anywhere in the deep South, I mean, it's hot. I mean, it's, I mean there's some years we're wearing shorts and thanksgiving christmas not all the time it could be freezing but my point is is that deer you know people get hung up on temperature and they want they it's the rut and everyone reads about how the you know the timing of the rut starts the same every year that's what biologists keep saying that's that's what the research shows but the hunters want to wait for a good cool cool front i mean but do you think the deer out there are waiting for that they're not so it's it's um it's hot, it's challenging, but that's another reason why I like to hunt in the mornings because it's a little bit cooler. Not quite. Dude, uh,
1: see... That, that's a rabbit hole I feel like we're going
0: Oh, now. we're going to. Listen, okay, that all was, right. So, when I when I learned about Mark, it was the success you were having. Now, I think it was on one of the South Carolina Facebook groups. Like, we weren't even friends at the time. And I saw that you had killed... It was a really good buck, dude. Early season, like early, early uh, August... Uh, you know, early part of the season, you know, second, third week of August. And then I clicked on your profile like on the group and you know if you click on someone's profile on a group it'll show like all the posts they've made in that group and it was like a couple of years worth of you killing these bucks super early season and i'm like i am interested you <laughs> mentioned i think in the post something about hunting in the morning and then i think i messaged mm-hmm. you and this is kind of how we kind of started this um about you know you catch them catching them going back to bed in the mornings uh verse you know a lot of guys trying to hunt afternoons and they're trying to wait for that last 15 minutes of light when that buck hopefully for them would show up on that corn pile or that food plot or yeah. that bean field or wherever they're going to be hunting at that time of the season because you know most of your oaks there's not going to be really dropping at that time maybe unless you had some soft mass um and i found that super super interesting because again if you go back to traditional outdoor you know whitetail media from the midwest nobody talks about Hunting mornings until late October. Everybody's like, you stay right. out, you hunt <laughs> You hunt afternoons, you don't hunt mornings because you can blow deer out. And the more and more successful guys that we've interviewed, specifically hunting early season specifically as well, hunting in areas with a lot of pines, have had a lot more success, especially hunting feed trees or some kind of designated food source or catching them coming back to bed, specifically in the mornings, which I find very, very fascinating. So talk to me a little bit about this. How have you developed your strategy for hunting mornings? Like when did it really start clicking for you? And do you kind of remember the progression of what you know? what got you to start hunting mornings and then when you started having success and started having repeatable success hunting mornings early season?
2: Yeah. Um, I can tell you when I started, I have to think about that. Um, you know, I've always been one of those guys where it's like I hunt when I can. I mean, I I, you know, and that's a whole other rabbit hole talking about different weather and moon phases and all that stuff. But I just hunt when I can, you know, you don't know unless you go kind of thing. But I, I can tell you when it really started to click for me, I had already killed a couple bucks in the morning, early, you know, early season mornings, but in 2019, um, I killed two bucks, um, within like, a within like two minutes or so on one bachelor group. And that's when it really clicked for me. Um, and you know how, like, sometimes like you'll, you'll have, whether you're hunting publicly in a private land, you'll have a plan, you know, you're going to hunt here. You're going to hunt here because of these, of, of these conditions. Well, you get there. And you realize there's something else. The wind's different. The wind on the highways doing one thing. The wind down here is doing something else. Or there's another hunter or deer buses or whatever it is. And then you shift and go somewhere else. And then you start to kind of then you see something new. So that uh, that trip in 2019, um, it was pretty. That's pretty wild. I had to have this because like I, my my wife had given birth to our second kid. My, uh, it was my son a couple days. Yeah. So he was born August 14th. Um, it's a good thing I can remember that on the fly because our season opens the 15th. Well, he's in a, he's in a hunting now, which is great because he wants to come up here this season and have a second birthday party up here in the deer stand. But anyways, I mentioned that because my wife had just given birth second kid, my mother-in-law came in to stay with us. And so I got the, um, the go ahead to come up here for a couple days to hunt. And so I had a plan to go back in the timber, Climb somewhere, um but I, I tell you that 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 early season, one of the big challenges is like the wind. Y'all know this being in the south, and I'm sure I've covered it. But like it's it, it sometimes when the wind's not blowing good, if it's if it's like calm or like less than a couple miles per hour, it's going to do whatever it's going to do. So I, I climbed somewhere, deer are busting me left and right. My scent was just going everywhere. So I said, you know what, I'm gonna back off. I got sit on a peanut field. That was like a backup place, um, and I was on, it was two fields kind of together, but you couldn't see both of them. And I was sitting on one field. I already had a stand set up. I thought it was a good good sight, and all, all I had was like a little doe and a spike. And I was just blown away while there weren't more deer coming in to the point was to the point where I got down a little bit early, you know, a little bit early, so I could go look at that peanut field next to me. And sure enough, I crept up. And there was at least like 60 are out there. I could see their antlers. They kind of assuming they were all bucks. It was real gray light, but I could see some antlers. And so based on that, um, you know, I backed out so I, so, so I didn't blow them out. But based on where, based on the field they were in, in the side of the field they were on, process of elimination I could rule out three sides where I knew I, where I know they didn't come from. They didn't cross my field. They probably didn't cross the highway during that daylight hour. So I kind of assumed where they came from. So the next morning, that's when I was like, okay. I mean, it was one of those nights where like, I'm staring at our uh, big Hunter map with a whiskey, just like saying like, I've got, I had, yeah. Cause that next morning was my last morning to hunt on that trip. I had to go back and, you know, was diaper duty and all that. So, I was like, you know, I saw those bucks. Um, I know where, I know what side of the field they entered. So I, 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 I was like, I know with, you know, that I had, this is where they have to be coming from. So then that next morning, went down there, climbed right outside this pine thicket. And sure enough, had some does kind of coming through, which I always noticed that does tend to, you know, they, this is just my opinion, my take. Does tend to be the first ones in and the first ones back when it comes to leaving bedding, going in the fields, going out and feeding the day, and the kind of first ones to skirt back and this bucks will linger a little bit. And um about 30 minutes after light, I started to have some bucks coming coming back through the timber. And it was I was climbing in some mature pines, about 25 years old, that had been thinned twice, was being burned every three years. So good open basal area, but then some very good vegetation height, early successional growth. And they were just browsing their way back in before they hit that pond thicket. And, um, I, you know, I saw a nice one shot and then all of a sudden there was more, there were more that were coming out. And it was just like, I was blown away by what I was witnessing. There was more bucks coming. And so at that point, it's like, you know, I shot, the deer vanished. I figured it dropped. It didn't run off. But I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I just had a second kid, right at the start of deer season. Um, Twenty feet up a pine tree, my seven mag still loaded. There's another buck. I, I think I need to shoot. I think so. That was the second one I shot, and that hunt. That's when it really started to click. You know, you get these trail camera footage or film pictures of these 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 bucks around these fields, and then you can kind of see them sometimes. They'll bed down and deer. They'll, they'll, they'll leave their daytime bedding and then they'll go feed and they'll bed throughout the night and then relocate in the morning. And since then I've been, I've been having that strategy on, on early season box.
0: It's fascinating. So one thing I want you to clarify because there's a lot of listeners that hear you shot two bucks in one more, one morning. And um I had a situation last yeah. year where that happened, which is illegal in Alabama. It was a complete mistake on on a situation. <laughs> but t- talk to us how many tags y'all get in, in, in South Carolina and what is like the daily bag limit, if there is a
2: daily bag limit on bucks. So the so the day the daily limit is two. Um and I'm trying to think when the buck tag so do- so doe tags antlerless deer tags have always have, have been a thing in South Carolina since I think sometime in the eighties. Um, always had those. Um, but they started the buck tags I think in 2018. Yeah, that's right. Because I, I did tag those two bucks. It was either 18 or 19 is when, when, they finally implemented antler restrictions and buck tags. However, they have a deer quota program in South Carolina that, 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 um, landowners or hunt clubs, can apply for. And you, you know, give them a map, you, you know, and they look at your, your, your County, you know, your timber to ag or field ratio and basically give you, you know, give you tax to only use for that particular property. And that's based on your area density and really how many deer they want you to shoot. If, you know, if at all possible. Interesting. Okay. Fascinating. So, so like, so yeah, like, it, so if we get X amount of buck tags, I would not do this, but I think legally you could shoot all, you could fill all those buck tags immediately if you wanted to. I mean, no one would do that, obviously, but um, there's not, uh, there's a little bit different rules and regs for the the deer quota program.
0: Gotcha. Fascinating. So also one other thing to add some, uh, uh, I guess some, some background for the listeners to understand like your properties, Uh, give us a little idea on the habitat and the terrain, you know, how flat or hilly or or mountainous is this area, which I kind of already know we're going to go with this. Um, And then also what is like the habitat makeup of your properties?
2: You know, for the most part, like what people think it's, it's flat, although we do have some elevation changes about anywhere from 10 to, 10 to 20 feet. Um, We've got a couple Carolina bays. A lot of people call those different. Those have a a couple different names, but essentially it's a, it's a, it's a large oval depression and you see them uh, throughout the Southeast. The general consensus is that they're, you know, something large hit the earth a long time ago, a meteor, something with the way they're angled and also some minerals and different things they have, they have found in these depressions. So, but that big Carolina Bay, we've got a couple of them um, that um, we've got, uh, really, it's our property is just one big tree farm. We've got a lot of hardwoods, but the hardwoods around field edges, um, down the swamp. We have some spring-fed creeks. Uh, the swamp, for instance, has a good like 15 to 20-foot drop-off uh, going down on both sides, which is great on one hand. My on other hand, it's really difficult, challenging, trying to hunt and we do have a lot of ag- agriculture a couple hundred acres of you know leased ag fields that are in crop rotation
0: got gotcha. you okay fascinating um now I'll, i want to kind of get back and andrew tell me jump in if you have any questions it's about a, a ton because we're going to talk about the timing so for listeners and viewers you know we're kind of starting with this early season strategy and then i want to kind of transition because another thing that i didn't realize until i talked yeah. to you earlier on the phone is the timing of your rut which we're going to get to which kind of blew me away it wasn't when when you told me it was, that's not what I was thinking, at least. Um, which again,
1: I, d- I definitely want to talk about the the hot temperatures and hunting in the hot tent. Is yeah. that the direction you're going right yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I
0: want to do more on the on the early season and kind of like dealing with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so with the hot temperatures, I'm going to to take Andrew's question a little bit. Talk to me about your thought process again, hunting the mornings versus the evenings when it comes to the, the temperature swings. Like, how much of that plays a factor when it comes to overall deer and be able to get in some areas and maybe having a, maybe a slightly longer window of time of movement compared to, say, an afternoon hunt when it's ninety five degrees.
2: So my my take on afternoons is. One the, of the biggest challenges right off the bat is that early season, we've already covered this, you're hunting bucks only, you know, you can't shoot those until September 15th. And if you're going after mature buck, that's, you know, maybe at least three or four or five, that already you're setting yourself up for very challenging hunt because Whatever your herd might be, your density-wise, the percentage of bucks that you want to that you're willing to pull the trigger on, is a very small percentage of the of the, all the deer out there. So, if you're hunting a food plot, you're hunting an ag field, or even a corn pile or feed or whatever it is, um, you're gonna have probably every other deer type come out first before your target deer you know, a big giant buck comes out. You're going to have all these does. You're going to have young bucks. You're going to have fawns, a ton of eyes looking around. The one benefit is it's early season. The deer aren't used to you and they haven't been educated yet. So you do have that on your side, but, but, but as soon as one busts you, that's why like bow hunting, for instance, it's extremely, extremely difficult because you have so many extra deer. And that's why like, you know, i tried glassing some of our fields, you know, how you see these cats do out out in the Midwest with, you know, glassing scopes and all that. And you can do it, but if that field's not on a highway where there's already cars passing and you can somehow kind of blend in with another feature, if you're in a field that's surrounded by timber, there's going to be a deer that's going to bust you. And then you've really screwed that field up early season. So that's one of the bigger challenges. And that's another reason why I kind of shifted more in the mornings because if you're going in and getting on top of bedding, yeah, you know, you might bump some deer that are kind of halfway there or not. But if the bulk of deer are still out feeding, when you're walking in, they're not around. And you're, I bump and educate, in my opinion, less deer in the mornings than I do in the afternoons. That's interesting. And got, and it, yeah, it's, yeah that, that's, that's at least my take on
1: it. I've actually had similar thoughts in the past, like in the, in the evenings, especially early season. I think, I think we might've talked about this on an outro recently, but like we'll be on a feed tree or something. And when it gets dark, if I haven't seen a deer yet, I cannot get on the ground and get out fast enough. Cause I'm like, they're going to be here any minute. And now I like, I'm not hunting where yeah. it's dark. I got to get the heck out of here. And it's not like that in the mornings. And I almost feel like, like you're saying evenings are a higher impact hunt for us in our areas, and uh, one thing i wanted to ask you about was you keep bringing up you know deer behavior and and you're like a student of deer behavior and and you study that on your property a lot i'm i'm curious about what you see deer doing in this you know 90 degree heat in early season and the reason i ask is because we've hunted in georgia a little bit early season where you got 80 90 degree days and sometimes it seems like they don't really care about it i mean we've seen them up in the middle of the day walking around Mm -hmm. they're not just you know walking through a wide open field they're in their kind of core areas but they do get up and move around so what has been your experience on on how the the heat affects the deer especially when they're still in that really thin summer coat
2: honestly i i don't think the heat affects them at all um i think it's i think that 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 what changes them is the human pressure so I mean, if any if anyone's out in like in like a rural, rural area that's you know farmland, you can probably drive out right now. I mean, it's you know right now and see deer sitting out in the sun, feeding away, sun beating down on them, ninety degrees, and they don't care. And um, you know you see you see photos and videos that, like that all the time. Now that's not every deer doing it, um, but I, I've got videos on my Instagram account of of big giant bucks that are moving around the swamps. Um, now they're not leaving the swamp, I don't think, but they're but they're moving around 90 degree weather. So, and if you look at a lot of the a lot of the um the GPS collar data, they move more throughout the day as opposed to just 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 sitting tight. But deer, man, they're pretty much left alone for the most part. I mean, all the other predators are still there, but but the main predator is gone for, you know, eight, 10 months out of the year. And they're I it that's why i brought that up a minute ago about southern deer and this like the midwest hunters northeast can't relate to this but our deer down here man i mean it's like when i m- mentioned about the rut and how some hunters want to wait till like some my like cooler temps the deer aren't waiting i mean they they you know they they are pretty much on the same schedule every year that that you know happens due to photo period and they don't they don't it it doesn't bother them. And and I tell you, and one last thing, when I tell you does not bother them, and it's crazy, but how deer have to you know have to eat, but to maintain a healthy weight, they need to eat like six to eight percent of their body weight a day, which is just insane to think about. If you really think on how much weight, how many pounds they got to eat every day. So, like, yeah, they they have to go out in the sun. I mean, they they can't do all that uh, in the night every night. They got to get out there.
0: Yeah. And real quick, Andrew's got to talk about that, like how much body weight, like a 200 pound deer, you're talking about, you know, 12 That's to lot. 18 pounds of food. Our buddy Alan Summerford, uh, Summerford, who's been on the podcast a few times, he came down to our family farm and he gave, he was like, hey, if I gave you a bucket right now, we had a soybean food, we had a couple of different soybean plots down there. And, uh, but there's a ton of like native legumes and stuff growing all over the place. And he's like, man, if I gave, in the, the soybeans at the time were real short, I mean, they were four inches tall, maybe. He said, like, I gave you a five-gallon bucket, and he said the same thing you just mentioned about how much they have to eat per day per deer based off their body weight. And I asked you to fill up this bucket, which would not be that heavy, Okay. Whether it's the soybean plot or the native forage that you have on on the place, how quickly do you think you could fill up that that bucket? Whether you're in the soybean plot or in the native forage, and like when we were looking at the ground, I was like, yeah, I can see bare soil all over the place in this uh, food plot. You in just the walk all plots. over the food plot. Yeah, just got, and the deer weren't hitting it all that much because there's all this, these native legumes in there and all these different brow species that they were hitting, and like yeah, I could fill up one so much easier in that habitat than on that little food plot um, but yeah it, it's it's amazing when you start thinking about that like how much they have to eat you know on a daily basis especially you're talking about a deer you know but still you know at this time of the year in August they're not really putting on you know any more antler they're just they're, it's starting to harden up and they're kind of like filling out but you're talking yeah, about yeah. you know you're talking about you know march and they start growing or you know may, or april and may and june july they're eating so much as to build their body weight back up, and then also build that antler mass they're burning through so many calories i mean it's amazing how much food they go through it's a it's a really good point that i'm glad you brought up but Andrew, yeah. Andrew has well, got some questions on so that. <laughs> uh,
1: one thing i wanted to go into with the heat thing is it, it's, it, it's an interesting subject to me because you know they live in it kind of like you're saying they're used to they're made to live in these temperatures you know our little southern deer you know weighing 150 pounds like they're made to to live in these really hot temperatures and is it one thing that leads into is there anything in early season that gets you really excited weather-wise like if you see instead of it being 95 degrees it's 87 degrees are you like all right like we got a temp drop coming (laughs) or or does it really not
2: matter um i know i get excited by that that's for sure um I haven't noticed a difference because I, I, you know, I only hunt so many times, you know, in August, early September. So, and it's not often a little bit last August when I was up here hunting, it was a slightly cooler. It was like in the mid eighties. Um, I haven't noticed a difference. I mean, I, I would think there is, and that, and that's one of the reasons why, um, i like that style of hunting um but i i i i haven't i haven't experienced cooler temperatures early season enough to i think accurately answer it
1: well what about any other weather conditions like maybe you got an overcast day or maybe you got a uh, rain showers coming through do, do any of those weather phenomena like play into your tactics
2: you know rain um i tell you one thing I noticed two years ago when I was hunting is we had a downpour. It was like first light was coming. You know, I, I was, I was up a tree and it was, you know, it was slowly getting lighter and light a gray light. And all of a sudden it was getting darker and darker and darker. It was like someone was just dimming the lights back and it was this band of rain that came in as downpour. Um, and so the deer, I did have a bachelor group that came in, but they were a little bit too far to shoot. But they were delayed from that rain. They were in a peanut field on my neighbor's property, I assume at least. That's what I was assuming they were coming from. I was up against the bedding. And that rain, that downpour de- delayed them heavily. To the point where I was ready to get down, um, it might have been like an extra hour or so. I was ready to get down, but I was just baffled why I didn't see any deer. And then about 30 minutes after the rain stopped, uh, they started to all come back, some does, and then and then in, the, in that group of bucks, so I, I don't know if they just kind of hunker down. I mean, it was a pretty good downpour, but that buck I shot last year behind me in August, um, there was rain that morning, but it wasn't heavy. It, it was it went a downpour, and a lot of times a like, deer they don't care. I mean, really, yeah, I, you know who knows? But I would think they would like it, you know, getting a little shower on them, and um, but. Who knows?
1: Yeah, kind of cools things off. Or, you know, if, if the sun comes back out, it steams us like a bunch of shrimp. That's the problem. <laughs>
2: that's that's <laughs> the problem. It only lasts like 30 minutes, and then, and then it gets steamy. That's for sure, yeah. Uh,
0: also, I, I want to talk about uh, – because I, I want to talk more about how you look at these different spots on your farm as in – I know you know these handful of spots will be ideal for that morning hunting early mm-hmm. season specifically so if we're talking early season we're gonna get a little bit more into mid-season late season as well in this episode but i'm thinking about this from our south carolina listener standpoint you know if they had this opportunity to be able you know they have some private land they had the opportunity to be able to do this hunt how they can take this into advantage uh for them what are you looking for or how are you going about scouting or analyzing your properties and i know you know y'all been hunting it for a while now but when you're analyzing something like this, how are you trying to figure out where is the best ambush point? Even though you're hunting with a rifle, but you're getting back in the timber, mm-hmm. how are you pinpointing exactly what they like to bed on your property, what kind of habitat they like to bed in, and where's your best ambush point to, be to put a climber in there or hang a stand in order to get a position to catch them farther or far enough off that food source that you're catching them during the, the light that you're talking about?
2: Yeah, so ideally, if someone can identify a major hub, of food uh whether it's food plots ag field but maybe it's and sometimes it's off my property it's on my neighbor's property a big peanut field cornfield soybeans whatever it might be but a very good hub where you, where you know it's going to pull deer in um and from that it's really just trying to backtrack to the to the to the closest bedding our bucks tend to our bucks that are usually like like three, three plus years like prefer to bed in um, in pine thickets, you know, clear cuts that have been reforested. and once the pines get up to maybe maybe five to six years, sometimes earlier than that, basically you need some shade. The trees have to be tall enough where you get some good shade so the sun, so the sun's not really beating down on them. Um, we've got some neighbors that, you know, clear cut a uh, handful of years ago and they, they did not replant. So they just let it grow up wild. Some people let their clear cuts grow up wild. It's a different process as far as growing trees, but that's, but that's very beneficial too. So, but just because you have that, you know, deer are going to be in it. but then it's, but then, but then it's, how are they using it? Where are they using it? Um, I prefer to kind of hone in on thickets that are – if I'm going for thickets like upland sites, try to find some that might be more on the – like the southern end of those thickets. We get a lot – you know, uh, south winds early season before some cooler temps start to come in. On the south end of those thickets, you you might, depending on the landscape, have a better breeze coming in. Um, Or if it's – I can think of one clear-cut thicket over here where – uh, there's a little bit of a, of a, of a depression in the middle. You know, people talk about deer crossing bucks, crossing in fields that have, you know, a little bit of a depression. They'll, they'll, they'll go in that. So they don't, they can hide a little bit better, but some of those lower points and those thickets um, hold, hold more water rain filters through and and you have more lush early successional vegetation. And I, on my, I notice a lot of bucks in some of those thickets because they have that growth, they have the shade, and they have that early successional growth to where they can get up and feed uh, throughout the day or when they want to and lay back down because that's what bucks do. I mean they're they're not they're not just bedding down at first light and just going to sit there until you know. Um, until dusk they're gonna they're gonna get up a little bit the swamps are a little bit different of an of a beast to 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 tackle early season bucks in yeah sure okay for sure
0: now i gotta ask you this because um you know you're talking about bucks bedding in those clear cuts which of course we see a ton of that we actually just found two big buck beds uh saturday which we talked about on an outro from a couple weeks ago probably yeah um that were in a A shady spot, you know, probably probably five, six year old clear cut. Um, They were in the SMZ where you had some dead fall where it was, they had unbelievable shade and cover. There was, the ground was extremely moist. They had a little bit of elevation. It was kind of dark in there. Yeah, it was much dimmer, like low light capability. Even, there was much more low light. (laughs) Nine, ten o'clock in the morning, it was like, you know, you couldn't wear sunglasses in there. You know, out in in more of the open stuff, you know, you'd be, you know, blinded. But right there, it's just so dark. But in your area... Do you see those bucks kind of bedded, especially around those clear cuts? Are they kind of on the edge of it, or do they kind of get back in it, it seems? How have you seen them, especially kind of early season, bed in around the clear cuts or those pine thickets?
2: Yeah, so I, I got to be honest. I haven't really seen them a, a whole lot, you know, actually utilizing them. But, you know, occasionally I will bump some, driving around, getting out, whatever, around them. And and it does seem to be some of those, those pine thickets. They like to be on the edge, I guess to see out, or maybe that's because they've got some good wind flow. I mean, I, you know, you got you got more airflow on on the edges than you would right smack in the middle. So, um, I you know, I assume they're probably getting in there just in the deepest nastiest parts. They're just loaded with briars. Um, but I I'm not one that really goes in and kind of hones in on, on on specific beds. I I, I tend to kind of find the general thickets. Um, that could be one acre, half an acre, or it could be 10 acres. But I know they're in there doing it, and then I try to pinpoint where where exactly they're going to be funneling out of.
0: All right, so another thing I want to ask you, uh, from one southerner to another southerner, you hear a lot of guys in the Midwest, and you hear some guys in the South talking about bucks not wanting to go through thick cover in velvet, okay? um, <laughs> And I have seen, in my opinion, not that to be the case, uh, What is your take on bucks going through, whether it's high stem count areas with a ton of saplings, whether it's you know greenbrier thorns? Is this, what is your take on bucks utilizing or not use utilizing areas that have that extremely thick cover in velvet?
2: So, so I, uh, I got to ask who who said this?
0: There, there's quite a few people. <laughs> you can listen. There's some podcasts on here actually. Yeah,
2: yeah. I've actually never heard that, and I haven't noticed that. I mean, think about all those all those acorn tips tines that we see i mean those are any kind of funky not every all of them but when you see those acorn tips and different things those are damaged damaged velvet um you know i get what they're saying and and i and there is some validity because they they do have you know nerve endings and all those little hairs and that's what the point of all the little hair on, on the velvets for but at the same time man you know that when you bump a deer or when you see a deer flee they are skilled and they can, they can run like, like, you know, like better than any other animal, but still they're going to be, they're going to be ripping through some stuff. I, I don't see that being the case. What I see is these deer, they, they just close their eyes and just bury right in. So, cause you know, it's not go off on different habitat predator, uh, tangent, but you know, we have a lot of predators around here. I, I get coyotes all the time. I hear them all the time. They're here. They're all throughout South Carolina. Most people have them. Uh, you shoot them, they're still going to come around. Um, but, you know, coyotes typically hunt roads. I mean, that's really one of the, one of the main other predators besides, besides a car for a deer. But I, a coyote's not going into briar thick. I mean, pretty much, like, if, if you don't want to go through a thicket, if you're getting ripped up, There's really no other predator that that is going to subject themselves to that. I mean, quite frankly, when I'm going out in some of these areas and I'm wearing jeans or whatever kind of briar pant, I'm getting ripped up and just wondering, how are these fawns just doing it? But the fawns do it. They all do it. Okay, interesting. That's kind of what I figured you
1: were going to say. You got a grin when Jacob was asking that question. One question I have is (laughs) when you're trying to narrow down like maybe which thicket Uh, is going to be holding the bucks or or which one you ought to be targeting like which bedding area you should hunt the edge of trying to catch deer coming back to it are you utilizing trail cameras for that or is it sign reading like are you looking for big tracks or observation sets like what is your
2: process really all the above all the above and just historical data but yeah i mean uh tracks i mean fresh tracks i mean I, i i i tell people all the time i mean just you know keep up keep a disc arrow hooked up your tractor. And, you know, I mean, that's how I turkey hunt a lot. It's just um, creating, fi- like maintaining fire breaks. You know, fire breaks are a big thing down the south. Everyone doesn't do it. But even if you don't burn, I understand you don't want to disc your road. Um, but if you have a good wide road or the next time you or the landowner's Cutting trees, have them cut trees on both sides of the road, so that that you open it up, get some sunlight, so you don't have to worry about ruts and mud and stuff like that. It can help dry the roads out. But you know, keep your roads. uh, You know, I like the grass on the roads, but also love seeing tracks. And you can't see tracks. It's amazing. You know, you go to a property and and, 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 you know, if if there's not bare dirt, you won't see you won't see tracks. You might assume there's just not a whole lot of deer, not a whole lot of turkeys. But if you keep those roads clean and are not clean, but if you keep them kind of dist, you'll be able to see tracks. As far as other sign early season, I mean, there's really nothing else I'm looking for besides tracks, some, some, some trail cameras, historical data. Um, and just really kind of trying to hone in on those hubs. Um, food plots, ag fields, maybe it's, you know, um, persimmon trees anything like that if someone doesn't have those features doesn't have those destination food sources i would just suggest hanging cameras finding some good trails going going in and out hang a camera and then based on what you find decide to go decide to push back or t- decide to go further in
1: with uh with track specifically what get you excited about tracks? Like, what do you need to see on the ground? Is it just a really big track or is it the quantity of tracks? And also what is a big track for you in South Carolina out of curiosity?
2: You know, I've heard people talk about like the, the four fingers or whatever. And I, I just, uh, a big track. is just a, it's just a, <laughs> just a big track. I don't, <laughs> um, I, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think of some ones that, oh, um, yeah. I mean, I, would just just a big solid buck track, and I only need one. You know, I mean, because you know, if if you see one, I mean, really, if you, any size buck track, if you see one, odds are there's some others kind of close by. Um, they because they, you know, sometimes I'll see on camera or hunting a bachelor group that just might be two. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've had a two party like tag team bachelor group, and they're going to stick together all summer, sometimes all the way into like early September. I'm sorry, mid September, and other times these bachelor groups can be eight to ten, twelve bucks. It's kind of I would love. I don't know if there's any kind of research on that, but just just the composition, just the makeup of the, that of that process.
0: Uh, uh, okay, with bachelor groups, I'm, I'm real curious to get your take on this because <laughs> again, you have so much experience hunting when they're still in bachelor groups, and also the trail cam data too. Do you see certain age yeah. range bucks? sticking together um like as in like some of your upper you know older bucks that you have on the farm are they kind of sticking together or do you have like some of these bigger groups where you'll have you know bucks that are year and a half old all the way to you know six years old or something like that in a group how do you see like an age range structure is there any kind of pattern in that as in you know some bucks hanging out with other bucks or is it kind of a mix of all different age classes
2: the larger batch of groups that i'll see you know that are six plus plus you'll see, you'll see a whole range. Like when I killed those two bucks in 2019, there were spikes, there were four points. There were some either, even after pulled the trigger the second time, there were some other bucks kind of still, still trickling in, um, off in the distance that I couldn't really quite see well. Um, but you know, I, when they're smaller numbers, like two or three, they seem to be pretty close in age. To where, if they're off in age, it might only be a year or so. I don't think I've ever seen like a one or two year old with like a four or five year old. Usually, it's like maybe a a four year old and a three year old, or maybe uh, I mean, you know, this is all just me guessing. I mean, I you know, I'm pretty good about one and two and three year olds, but when it starts to get to, you know four and five plus, it's like it's it's it can be pretty deceiving until you kill them and have that jawbone in your hand. So that that's what I've noticed. When you think turkey calls, think a houndstooth.
1: Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different reed configuration. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB hen, some days I might like the ghost cut. Some situations I might like the country girl call, you know, that I can cuddle on really hard where on other situations i might like the all pro that i can get a little bit softer on bottom line there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey you can get 15 percent off of your order at houndstooth game calls by using the promo code sop24 that's sop24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast
0: true lock chokes has been made in georgia since 1981 and offer a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a lock choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance, absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far?
1: Yeah, I've, always, I've used the same choke for several years now. and never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at... Uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the true lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the true lock choke is unbelievable. Like, everybody's jaws were dropping. Like, when I, we were out there with Mike and Sam, we were all super impressed. I mean, it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke.
0: And, Andrew, you're shooting the Precision Hunter choke from True lock it's a great option, same chokes I have in my shotgun. So guys, if you want to give Truelock a shot this spring, you can head over to TrueLockChokes.com. That's T-R-U-L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code SOUTHERN at checkout at TrueLockChokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give True Lock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun, and shoot with a more deadly pattern with Truelock. I've got so many other questions with the early season, but I kind of want to get to after the early season. What what else about early season, I guess, gets you excited when it comes to those, those morning hunts specifically? I mean, is there anything that we've kind of missed or like important aspects of things that you do when it comes to stand placement, you know, picking a tree that you're going to climb or anything else when it comes to access, getting into those spots where, you know, you get in clean, where you're not bumping deer
2: before you get in there? Like, what is some of your thoughts on all that? I, you know that uh, some of that stuff is really kind of i do without the season it's just i mean i i i think early season is a is a completely different animal because you will more than likely be the first hunter the first human that's going to be in the whitetail woods wherever you hunt um around the hunting times meaning you know i i personally think it's good if some hunting ground has some pressure of some sort you know whether it's just your truck driving ever so often so that eventually over time when you're driving a truck, you're not bumping deer. They get used to it. There's a truck coming. It's, it's, that's not danger. So what I'm saying is like, yeah, you might have farmers, foresters, you might be doing work on your food plots, your deer stands, trimming roads, this and that, which probably, no one's probably doing work like that at the crepuscular hours, you know, dawn and dusk when you should be hunting. So all of a sudden, you're going out there. So yeah, I, I think about um how I'm going to get my area. Am I going to drive? Am I going to walk? You know, I even think about like, if I walk, where's my scent going? Because if I'm walking a couple hundred yards down the road, my scent's blowing my, the entire time. Cause I'm, I'm fully exposed where, as opposed to there's times where I'll drive my truck. This is just me being way overthinking things. But if I'm sealed up in my truck, you know, I'm not exposed So my sin is not blowing out through the woods as I'm walking down as opposed to driving. But I think it's being very, very methodical and very deliberate about ha- access, getting in and getting out, leaving the mornings. I don't think is as important as opposed to like leaving in the afternoons, man, that's killer. I mean, there's, there's some times I might have someone hunting up here and they've got like a, a field full of does during doe season And, you know, they're going to try to sneak out like, oh, you know, it's great. I had had a field full of does. I was like, you know, I'm almost, I'd almost rather them shoot a doe just to take, just to kind of spook everything off rather than the person get down and and a human all of a sudden present themselves by the deer stand and and all 10 of those deer see them. I would almost rather he, you know, shoot one, but it's just being methodical and deliberate because y'all know this, it's like you're hunting an area for the first time there's going to be a lot of deer. They're going to be bedded all, all, all around. That all of a sudden you start hunting, and then they'll kind of start to kind of push back a little bit more, back where they used to bed, and, and all that'll shift as as the season uh, progresses.
0: Great segue, because this is now I want to kind of get into this September time period. <laughs> you know, after the velvet comes off, you know, these bachelor groups start kind of splitting up. Well, actually, even before September, talk to me about the timings of the year we've already talked about early season this august kind of opener and kind of like the special thing that you know south carolina has as opportunities to hunt but talk to me a little bit about when you look at the timing of the year on your properties you know your two farms or it's one farm but i think it's broken two different parcels how do you when you look at all the deer you've killed do they kind of fall into certain kind of categories of the season uh, typically of like when you've kind of taken some of those bucks, whether it's kind of early season, maybe pre-rut, rut, late season, you know, how is it kind of broken out? And then what are your kind of like your your high spots that you really like to kind of focus on throughout the season?
2: Yeah, I, you know, you're, you're spot on with that. Which, you know, most of my bucks, there's some outliers, but most of them are in probably three different timeframes. We've already talked about you know early season. Well, let's just kind of fast forward. All of a sudden, it's you know mid September. I use that as an example because September fifteenth, we can start shooting does. Once that date uh, occurs, we can shoot either sex all the way up to January first. So, by the time mid September comes around, you can still have some bucks that are going to come out on the field. And you know, we, we see them and shoot them, but it's not, it's not as common. It, it's like, you know, bucks are going through that kind of pre-rut stages. They're starting to kind of break up bachelor groups or sparring a little bit, figuring out, you know, who's the dominant buck, making sign, doing whatever they do, but they they don't show themselves as much in from what I've seen, even in areas where we're not really hunting them because they're going through some changes uh, as far as their mindset. But we start really hammering the does in September. We've gone through a lot of different strategies as far as antlerless deer management. We've done it all. We've we've gone through years where we don't shoot does on food plots. You know, don't shoot does on green fields. I actually got that from a uh, a manager in Alabama. Um, I did some hunting for probably close to ten years during the rut in um, on the Tom Bigby River out right around Butler, York, Alabama. Awesome place to hunt. And they were, you know, they, they they were doing something where you don't, you know, shoot goes on greenfields and it really worked for them. Uh, for us, it just, it made it more difficult to shoot them we try to shoot them at the end of the season and it's just it never works out how you do so we i've been doing something where i just have some fun and do like a little doe invitational tournament here at the farm invite some friends family it's just kind of like you know a fun weekend but really hammer them so you know i'll hunt early season with what's whoever in august but it's, it's really maybe a weekend it might be a week and then we back off for 30 30 plus days, and then we just go after dose hard. Um, starting usually that third week in September, whenever we can kind of get a group together, try to take as many as we can. Um, and that point with doing it that strategy, it's very common to have doubles. I call them doubles, it's you know, shoot, shooting two does at one time, triples, even. I even had a friend uh shoot four on one bean field one evening, and he still had deer coming out but i i have a rule that if you can see the deer drop you can shoot again but as soon as that deer that you shot runs off either go find it or stop shooting because last thing you want to have is two you know blood trails crossing um and i was very much worried about how that would affect our rut but after doing it for a number of years it does not affect the rut whatsoever as far as the box Bucks don't run off. Bucks are doing their own thing. We have a very high density. So shooting those does probably helps out. And long stories that we were going through some uh, phases years ago where we weren't shooting enough does. We were buck hunting. We had these bucks on camera, but we weren't, we weren't getting them on the wall. And I was just really kind of frustrated with we were growing these bucks. From you know young age all the way, and then then they're dying or hit getting hit by a car, another hunter was shooting them, so we were trying that strategy um come October, we really try to lay off the doze a little bit someone wants to go shoot one and that's fine, but we start to kind of really focus more on bucks that second week that second week in October is when things really start to pick up um early. I mean, I've killed some good bucks October 1st, but the first two weeks of October, they're starting to show themselves more, made their presence known. They're probably checking scrapes. At that point, the does really get... The does start to get a little... They go through their first shift because you have all these young bucks, the spikes, the four points, the one... Like the one-year-olds, maybe some two-year-olds, and they don't really know what's going on, but they start bumping the does, they start chasing them. I'm sure every hunter's seen that before the ruts. You get these bucks, and they're bumping these does off. So all of a sudden, you got these does that you know they've they've got fawns, they got doe groups, and they're they're being harassed. Um, and you, so our peak breeding, and I can say this officially. Um, I just I joke because everyone's you know. I used to think I knew my I used to think I knew my peak breeding before I actually got a hold of a fetus scale, and you know, with a fetus scale, that is probably the ultimate tool someone can use. And by using that, if you if you harvest a doe after they've been bred, uh, in, in our area it's December, and they have fetuses. There's there's a there's a a, a scale. It's really a ruler that Joe Hamilton, the founder of uh, QDMA uh, created and you, you measure it and they have the dates on there. And so basically you're measuring how, how, how long it is. And then it tells you when that dough was, was bred, when that fetus was conceived. If there's twins, triplets, you just average it together. And it really only takes like maybe five or six, five or six does late season. And then after a while, all the dates just start coming in. This is the peak breeding when the first hitting estrus. Later on, you m- – see, our season isn't long enough. If you were to shoot one the very end, in a December, 1st January, you might see a fetus from that second rut, rut cycle. But that around the 20th of October, if you're in an area in a thicket where does are, that, that smell of estrus – you know, where if you get, you know, deer asterisk deer, if you, buy, if you buy deer, you're on the store, that smell should hit you out, out in the, you know, thickets walking around. And that's, that's when everything kind of opens up wide here. Dude, that's so crazy. Again, when we
0: originally, uh, Yumi talked earlier today about the rut, I was thinking sometime in November, cause I knew the season does, doesn't last very long. I mean, even though it comes in early, it ends, I think it's like, is it ends the, the end of December typically? Or first January? January 1st. Okay, January 1st. So yeah. it's not like us. We go to February 10th here. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking, like, November. You're like, no, dude, it's like the second, third week of October. It's like, it's it's it. Like, that's when does are getting yeah. bred. It's just – which is kind of cool. Um, actually just really fascinating, to be honest. But that is that is super interesting how you started using that that uh, the fetus scale or under that ruler system in order to kind of on your property figure out – like after you average up, you know six seven does and those fetuses, what the average is for you know peak breeding in that place, which really can you can use that so much into your advantages. I don't care about necessarily hunting that day, but that week leading up to it, that ten days leading oh, up yeah. to it, and maybe yeah. even like the the la- the latter you know six or seven days trying to find those you know last couple does to come into heat. I mean, that is so valuable uh, in order to kind of have that information on property. Again, I haven't heard of of a landowner necessarily doing that, uh, you know, on their own. So that's super fascinating. Now, in addition to that... um, the, the the transition in October. How does your hunting style transition in October when you're trying to get these bucks? Kind of early pre-rut. You know that that you know pre-rut happening that first week of October as they're transitioning to find those first hot does. You know that second third week of October.
2: Yeah. So if I'm tar- if, if if I'm trying to kill a buck, um, right when the rut's kicking off, you know I might. If we have a good field that's just red hot. Um, you know, some fields kind of come and go as far as preference. I think it's, you know, of course that deer have their nutritional preference, but it's also hunting pressure. I mean, some, some spots can burn, but if we have a good red hot field, I'll hunt it. Um, but if not, I, I like to hunt around the does. I like to, I like to find and usually where does are that time of year is where they're most most years are going to be but really try to find where they're find where they are find where they're bedding find where they're feeding look for tracks look for look for you know uh look for the um droppings the tracks especially if, if you smell that estrus on the ground and then just hunt hunt around that you know because you it's you know it that's when I like, I will hunt around where bucks are early season and late season, but right there in the middle, I'm hunting where the does are because you know, why am I trying to chase down where he's bedding or whatever? Because they're going to be after it's like, I, I use this analogy all the time. If someone's ever been around a dog that's, that's, you know, not fixed, not neutered, a male dog. And if they're ever around a female dog that's in heat, especially when that dog is receptive because, because the female takes a little bit for them to become receptive, but that male dog, I mean, that is all he's wired to do. And that's what bucks are wired to do. And that's, and that's how the species has has survived for four millions of years. So I find the does and that's how, that's where I hunt them. It it, it just kind of depends on where they are. Um, That the only major tactics I'll employ would be using a doe decoy that part, um, of October, I have rattled my entire life and it wasn't until a couple of years ago. I think I really fine tuned at least our area that I don't know what it is, but that first week in November it's, you know, rattling for me has been highly successful, but, but, you know, calling is a, is a whole different mindset because you, you gotta be in the earshot of the buck. A buck has to hear it. But then they also have to, they have to be jacked up. They have to be in that mindset where either they're angry and they maybe want to fight or they're just curious. So just because you grunt or your rattle doesn't mean you're gonna pull them all in. But using that decoy, I I it was one I've had this decoy for a long time and it came with antlers. And I first started hunting it, you know, using a small buck. And after a while, it is I just, you know, after I was learning more about deer behavior and deer biology, it's like, okay, so if I've got a small buck that resembles uh, maybe a small two-year-old, that means that that I'm hoping that a three-plus-year buck is going to see it and get, and it's going to anger them. And they're going to try it in to look at, get get a better look or try to fight it. So again, it's kind of like rattling. It's like, you can rattle, but it's not going to get every buck. They've got to be in that mindset, come in. So why mimic a buck? as far as a decoy during the rut, why not mimic a doe? So, you know, I took the antlers off and, you know, placement, placement has to be, you really got to think about placement about the doe decoy. And then if your if, if you're state, if it's legal to use estrus scent, man, that's just, that is killer. You got the doe decoy, you got the estrus scent. And if you kind of have an idea about where deer are going to be moving through wherever you're hunting, and if you, if you can play the wind to where, You can get in early and set the decoy up with that scent to blow, you know, where you anticipate those bucks, anticipate that deer coming through. That's a pretty deadly combination.
0: And would you be doing that more so with like a crosswind kind of situation or setup? How would you kind of go about having that wind blowing in a certain direction
2: and you be able to kind of, you know, shoot in that general area? You're exactly right. A crosswind. Yeah, it's... uh, I don't, use, I haven't used a decoy that much, but I've been doing it off and on for a long time since like, I think I got that like an 07. So yeah, like it's gotta be a crosswind. You don't want it on top of you. You, you don't really want it. I mean, the bow hunters that do it, I commend them, but I don't really have it too close, a little bit further out. You try to do it in some areas where you're not going to startle them. You don't want a deer to all of a sudden step out and just 10 yards from them that being said i've had i i don't think i've ever it, 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 if i've had a doe bump off from that doe decoy i didn't know about it um it's you know they'll look at it and they they don't they don't care um at all but yeah a good crosswind is what you need for sure Typically are you gonna do that more so
0: in a in a larger opening, whether it's a larger plot, uh a larger field or something like that. Or will that ever you take place that ever in uh you know in the timber at all?
2: It's, it's primarily gonna be on fields, like you said, uh occasionally, depending on what um what the situation is, I will bring in some in some timber. Um the a buck I, I shot a buck last October. It was um I think the 22nd or 23rd 24th, 25th I was up here for a weekend with some friends that third weekend in October and we, there, there were there were there were three big box shot and uh more scenes that that was that's, that's a good weekend to be in the woods but in that scenario I was up against um a spring a spring fed creek bottom that some beavers had dammed up a little beaver pond. it's just a it, it it's a hub for finding shed antlers you go around those areas looking for sheds you find antlers down there it's just a good kind of classic place for bucks to hold the, the you know as a stronghold for deer and the wind was right and i was hunting a, a pond block that that gets a lot of deer to cross through it's not very big and i went in there with my decoy had a good crosswind uh had some scent out around the decoy kind of drifting right down to that to, to that bottom land and he he just he, he came in with his head down, just creeping in right 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 in there.
0: That is interesting, especially like the scent aspect. We we get scent like especially like deer lure scent. Talking like you know especially estrus or you mm-hmm. know buckier and stuff like that. You know some states you can use it, some states you can't. Some states it, can, it has to be synthetic. Some states allow you know uh, you know natural scent. Um, but it's always highly uh, discussed on the podcast because you have some guys that truly believe in it and love it and other guys are like uh, they've had absolutely terrible results for like scaring bucks or just bumping deer out with like etrus I mean yeah. what is your take on some of that just because again you know we, we've heard both sides on this podcast you know it's almost 50-50 between the guys that like it and use it and trust it and the guys are like I'm not going to carry it with me at all at any point in the season
2: it, it is tricky like you said I um I really if I use a scent it's going to be an estrus scent dough urine with with estrus and it's going to be around the ruts um that last two last two weekends october first week of november one of the big issues you can have and it happens a good bit is if if a doe catches wind of it they don't spook off but it just really angers them and it's it's like they just know something's off and you know they don't do that when they smell other real estrus out out in the woods but you can really just anger a doe group to the point where that matriarch doe just hangs around. And she might even circle around downwind to where you had that scent hanging from to see. Um, But that's usually, that's always happened when I've had just the scent out. I've never had that experience when I've had the decoy with the scent. I don't know maybe if, um, if they would smell it and then they also see the decoy or what, But when I've had those problems with the does and they just lock on that sin, they just, they're just irritated and they're blowing, they're stomping. Those are usually tight areas. Those are usually tight, tight spots. And they just, they just know something's up, but they don't want to leave. Like they're not running off. It's just hanging around. You know, that either you're going to get a shot on that doe or your hunt is probably, probably toast. Gotcha. Now also, you know, during the rut specifically,
0: how does like say, especially if you're hunting a little bit more in the timber, whether you're like in some of these pine areas, you know, in and around some of these clearcuts, these little thickets versus like the swamp. How do both those places hunt differently specifically during the rut, and do you lean towards one more so than the other, especially when you're in the timber?
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, the well, the swamp's a lot more fun. I can tell you that. You know, there's a lot more nasty things down there that'll bite you but swamps a lot is just aesthetically i just love it i i I just love being down there however um if you're on the on the front end of the ruts i find you have a lot more bucks kind of they're not moving quite as fast later on that third kind of going in in november they can really start to you see them moving faster you see them just kind of chasing and when that happens, if you're down the swamp, it's a lot tighter, so it's just harder hunting. I mean, you just you just can't see as well. Basically, you can't see as well, and that's why I do a lot of hunting, rut hunting in in the timber. Uh, when I say timber for us, it's mature pine trees, thin a couple of times, and it's still they're they're big, but I can still fit my climb around it. With that, I can see so much further, and I can see them a little bit better, maybe coming and going. Um, but yeah the swamp um it's hunting there I do have more success during the rut and then after the rut because they're moving a little bit more consistently coming and going I find that bucks you know they will leave the swamp uh but they're not really moving as much you know before the rut they're just feeding they're they're doing their thing they're feeding but then during the rut they're they're trying to find the dose.
1: i I got a question about the rut especially with running trail cameras in the earlier part of the rut where you're saying they're like maybe they're they're moving more in daylight but maybe they're moving slower as compared to the later rut where things are getting a little bit crazy is there a particular time in the rut where you the bucks that are kind of like your homers like they're they're on your property where you're more likely to kill them like maybe in the early rut, but then later rut you're going to have like that totally random deer come through that that you're going to get a crack at. Did, have you noticed anything like that? Or do you just start seeing random bucks show up right off the bat and it just kind of goes off the wire immediately?
2: Yeah. I, I've never really noticed any, any kind of correlation with that. I, what I have noticed is that we'll get um, certain bucks on trail camera, just like everybody does during the summer and, and early season and those are the bucks you get and then some of those bucks will stick around and you see them throughout the year and and some don't and then sometimes on the rut you have a buck that shows up that gets shot or someone sees or gets on trail camera that you haven't seen before and I, i i've there are some experienced hunters and there's one even biologist that you know swears that you know that i personally know that some some of the older bucks So, younger bucks do a lot more breeding than what we are, we being, you know, the whitetail researchers, not me, but they used to think that it was more older bucks doing most of the breeding. But with with the GPS collars, what they're seeing is a lot of younger bucks are doing just, just as much, if not more breeding. Some very experienced hunters will say that some of the older bucks, four and five plus, will kind of hang back. And when this first doe's going to heat, they're not going to be out chasing around, they'll wait a little bit. I haven't really noticed any kind of correlation with that. If I could tag my bu- bucks, if I could put GPS collars on one I them, I could, I could certainly figure that out. But, man, when you look at some of these, like, Mississippi State University, their content is just insane. But if you look at some of those GPS collar like home ranges, they'll be tight, you know, tight early season, tight throughout the summer to where they're not even crossing a paved road or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, the rut kicks up, and they're – On this property, that, sometimes there's really no, you you can't predict it. Some stick it around the property and and some doesn't. So so I do not subscribe that theory that you can get all the, quote, bucks on your property early season on camera. You know, doing the surveys, I think it helps tremendously, but I don't think you can really get a handle as far as bucks.
1: Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that too. We uh we got our hands on some GPS data from Auburn University a couple years mm-hmm. back and we did we did a couple like videos on it that are they're still on our Patreon right now, but that's one thing that we saw and these are these are collared deer that were on W in Alabama. There was I think 2 W and 3 hunting clubs that they were on. And we saw the same thing. It it was It was actually kind of shocking, to be honest with you, how small some of the home ranges were because there would be like a creek drainage, one creek drainage with little tiny drains coming off the sides of it, little tiny SMZs, but one main creek. And this deer, this one in particular I'm thinking of, he just ran a circuit, and he like never left that. And then in the rut, I mean, he ventured out some, but still he was pretty tight, and, and he had a couple little spots that he would always go back to. And, but there was a bunch of them like that. And, and there was a couple of them that were kind of all over the place. But I honestly was really surprised at how small of an area they would cover. And we had this one deer that we were looking at. This was on one of the hunting clubs. There was some planted pines next to a big hardwood bottom. And this, this buck, it was a collared buck because it had the sex data and everything. This buck was bedded in those pines. It went to that hardwood bottom like 21 days in a row or something like that like I mean like <laughs> clockwork he wouldn't go into yeah. the same tree every time but probably a I don't know what did you say three four hundred yard stretch of hardwood bottom he was just going to it every single day you know and I was like golly like that kind of opened my eyes to how habitual they can be especially in the earlier part of the season kind of kicking it back a little bit here but like what you just said just kind of tipped me off to that and Um I'm curious, do you have any like good examples of of maybe bucks that you've had on your property that you've had like a lot of history with that you've had to like really track and and learn over the years in order to get a tag on?
2: Yeah. Um there was one I was a buck I shot in twenty fifteen that we had on camera for two years prior. And it, and it and it took a little bit. And if I I didn't, I mean, as far as catching up to them, I mean, it just it just it just hunting around does. And I I shot him walking into a – I shot him with my climber on my back, walking in to climb over a cutover. And I, you know, I of course, you know, when I'm talking about it, it you know, people should not do on public land, obviously. But um, I do bow hunt a good bit. But I typically bow hunt in just certain. Certain setups, basically tight, tight situations. If I'm hunting where I can see a little bit further, I'm taking a rifle. Um, and I've gotten to the point where a while back I I, I took my rifle sling off, and uh, I took my rifle sling off because, you know, it used to be people would say, you know, if if you're if you're if you're free handing. You know shooting rifle, which I try not to do. But if you wrap your, you know, the sling around your elbow, none of that really. If you go to any kind of shooting instructor or like a sniper or anything, they're not going to tell you that, that that doesn't do anything. So I so I took the sling off. And one of the reasons is because without a sling it's not it's not on your on your shoulder and it's in your hands. And you got and you should have two hands on it, which means if your pack's on your back your climbers on the back, all you have to do is throw up and click the safety off find it and you're getting a shot off seconds and those seconds are everything. So, and I've killed, ai a, can think a two really good bucks walking into areas. And so I like to walk in, creep in, always kind of looking around and that it was um, Friday the 13th, 2015, November. And I was walking in to, um, to, to climb over a cutover. And something just kind of caught my eye. Down this break, and there was a there was a buck standing there, just looking right at me. Um, and it, it didn't move after I shot. There was some movement right behind him. So the only thing I can figure was maybe he was with a doe, w- with a doe or two, and that's why he just didn't really bolt. He wanted to. He was looking right at me. But that one, usually it's it's as far as the tactics, it's just hunting hard and just trying to really focus about where the does are going to be or where bucks are going to be. There was one that I ended up getting um, right after Christmas one year, and that was he whipped my butt um, throughout the rut. I actually had my crosshairs on him once. Um, I made a mistake that, see, that was 2016. I made the classic mistake of this, this, this buck was coming out exactly where I wanted a buck to come from, right, this trail in the pines. And I made that classic move of using my binos instead of raising my scope up. So that cost me a shot on that buck and then I'm catching up with them um, um, feeding because by the time mid December comes around, um, there could be some straggler does or fondos that are in heat that haven't been bred yet. But for the most part, these deer's worn down. They've been running hard, they, they, they've cut weight, and a lot of the bucks just. They just gravitate towards food sources.
0: Yeah. That was a good transition because I kind of wanted to get into um, that kind of later season hunting. And again, mm-hmm. you know, that being another time period about potentially, you know, targeting these areas and really kind of focusing uh, a little bit different hunting style. So how does that change for you? You know, we kind of mentioned the, the, the rut in the success. And by the way, I'm also pro no sling on a rifle. I've been doing it the last three or four years. <laughs> yeah. and uh, That
1: cost me an opportunity last year.
0: The, well, the funny thing is, I got to think here. I don't think I've shot one like that, but there's been a lot of times because I don't walk in the woods with. I mean, there, there's when I like people ask like, "How do you get up a tree, stand? How do you get up the tree with your gun if you don't have a sling?" Because most guys with Tyler pull up to their sling. I'm I strap it to my backpack and you know just climb up the tree. It's on my backpack the whole time. I hang this, I hang the backpack and the guns right there. It's super nice yeah. and easy. Yeah. And I take it off. What anyways? Um, so the the other thing about um you know your hunting style is kind of this late season opportunity and like you just mentioned with the the idea of these bucks really pushing back to feed what about this time of the year especially if you have a buck that you still want to go after if you're hunting specific deer or you have the you know you have the the thought process that there's probably another good buck on the property that i really want to try to go and find what is kind of running what are you running through your mind as in what are you going to be checking at that point of the season? I mean, is this really when food plots play a big advantage for you? Is there oaks or late-dropping acorns that are really playing an advantage for you? Like, what are you trying to take in consideration that time of the year to really try to find and focus on those bucks and get
2: opportunities at them? Yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned acorns. Uh, acorns very much play a part. Um, with our setup, we we have a lot of oaks and a lot of acorns, or, you know, if, if it's a good mass year, we do. But the oaks are really kind of spread out. We, we have some mixed in some pines, but a lot of them are, are on field edges, hedgerows, down the swamp, really places that not many like oak groves. Now, we are creating some of those with some oaks, excuse me, that we're planting. But we do not I don't necessarily have like a good solid kind of hardwood bottom as far as open with uh, acorns in the ground. Um, we typically will plant some naked oats, in the fall um we'll do some different kind of food plots but um, naked oats um, it's just a variety deer love them and you can get them very very inexpensive I mean sometimes five or nine dollars a bushel very inexpensive and uh deer deer love that early growth which is still happening in December by the time January February rolls around they'll 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 head out and deer won't eat them however, Um, it's outstanding for, 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 for quail and turkeys and insects will just load up. If you leave that oat standing all the way until the next spring, when you're spraying for your spring food plots, but to, to, to really answer your question, what I'm trying to focus on is really not so much like food sources because they're here. Okay. Um, but we've already kind of covered. Deer, deer eat just, just about anything, for the most part. I mean, I've seen them eat Spanish moss. They'll eat about anything. They're they are mowing down our cotton field right now. Um, what I try to hone in on is really where 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 the pressure is, is the least. You know where, where I I read something. I read this book that Dr. Valerius Geist. He's this famous you know deer elk biologist. Had a lot of different theories, but his book called Whitetail Tracks, really awesome. Um, one thing that stood out to me was he you know, talked about how whitetails will sacrifice better food options for better cover. You know, safety is first. You know, safety is above all um you know if they've got good safety but it, but it's but it's right by a walmart parking lot that's where they're going to be in the walmart parking lot they want that safety so you got to think man bucks all, you know bucks have been running at that point in december our late season they've been running hard and they've really kind of thrown themselves out there now i don't think they're thinking hey you know i've been i've been around hunters the past month i need to scale back but their their testosterone is dropping a, you know a little bit. You know once that estrus, once those does, you know come out of the heat, their testosterone starts to drop and they kind of start to shift back in that mindset before the rut. So they're holding up in their strongholds. They're going back in the swamps. They're going back in the thickets, and they're and they're eating a lot. And what they eat is, I think, is really from from what what I hone in on is where people have not been hunting. And that's in typically late season. If you want to see some deer, just go where people haven't shot, go where people haven't hunted, go where there's no pressure, and you'll and you'll and you'll find deer. I'm not going to guarantee it's always going to be a buck, um, but they are they are uh, I'm trying to think the right way of saying it. they are deficient on calories, like you mentioned earlier, and I don't I don't think they consciously think about that, but they're about to drop their antlers um and then start to regrow those and then if you, you know think about i think it's i think i think bucks when they are deer in general when they hit four their skeletal system is about complete so up until four years old not only are they you know eating for the put the body weight on to grow more antler but they're still growing bone you know you know their actual bones are st- still growing so it's all about food at that point now
1: at the end of the season where you're seeking out these uh less pressured areas where do you find that less pressured area are you are you then just trying to hone in on the best food source in that lo- low pressure area or is there something else like are you just trying to hunt up next to the bedding and it doesn't really matter exactly where the food source is as long as you know exactly where the bedding is at or is it vice versa
2: I typically will hunt around bedding or just good, good solid travel corridors. I mean, just kind of go into a, just kind of go into a thick area, probably some areas that are a little bit thicker than what I, than what I've described earlier to where they could be pines, but, but I can't see as far, a a little bit tighter and just looking for fresh sign. Really, that point is fresh sign, meaning droppings and tracks, just kind of finding where they are. Um, and then basing the next hunts on, um, on what I see, you know, observational sets. And I I don't do that thing that Midwestern hunts hunters will do when they, you know, go places where they'll spend the first couple of days observing. I, you know, I'm bringing a rifle or a bow. I'm going to hunt my way in. But you see something and adjust accordingly. But as far as, you know, destination food sources, not really so much because our acorns, if they're still on the ground, they're all over the place. And then as far as the fields, the fields are great. But at that point, deer really aren't coming out in those fields in the open, uh, they might be slipping in, you know, after, after dark. So maybe hunting around the edges.
0: Now with late season, do you have uh, a preference morning or evening or midday of when you, you know, potentially have more success late season? I mean, is it more of an afternoon movement? I mean, if you can kind of explain some of that for us, cause it's always interesting. It's always like one of the hardest times around here where we're at, you know, when we start getting the late season, you get post rut and it's like, Like what you mentioned, especially, you know, we're on some big pieces of public land, but there are so many guys that are out there to find those little nook and crannies that are holding those bucks and holding those deer late season. Yeah. It is like you went from seeing a ton of deer to they have completely disappeared. Went a hole in the ground. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Um I don't really I don't I, I can't say that there's a there's a better time of day to hunt. Um I really don't, other than if you really want to break it down, the majority of hunters are going to be in the afternoon. I mean, I think statistically you're going to see more people out in the woods hunting in the afternoon. So if you want to, if you want to split that hair, you could say hunt in the mornings, but maybe maybe have less pressure. There's less, less hunters in the landscape, but really it kind of goes back for me is that I just, I just hunt when I can. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I live two hours away from our farm. So yeah, it's really kind of based on when I could go. I, I was I was rarely looking at a count cal- well, I shouldn't say I can look at a calendar now and say, hey, yeah, you know, I want to hunt opening week, the you know, the rut, whenever. But as far as weather, any any kind of factors, I just go when I can. Gotcha. Fascinating.
0: Now, is there anything specific you like about late season hunting if you still got some tags in your pocket um, you know you're still trying to harvest a buck i mean is there anything you like about it as in like <laughs> is there any kind of consistency you're seeing with late season or is it is it fairly random as in the activity and opportunities
2: i think the latter what you said it's it's you know you say random but then someone say well there's you know there's a reason why they're all there's always a reason deer do things but yeah it can be kind of random to, I mean, what I like about late season hunt is shooting does because I I can pull so much. Da- I mean, it's a, it's amazing how much data data points you can collect from the skinning shed. And so like what I mentioned earlier about the fetus scale, I tell people this all the time, even they're hunting public land. I mean, if you're hunting a, a general area of a state and if you can over time, even if, even if it's over a period of years, if you can kill certain amount of dose, you know three to five to six does late season and collecting that data of the fetus you have learned you've got a great piece of you know uh data for that particular area i like that um you know yeah i would prefer to shoot a bug a little bit earlier in the season so they're not quite as depleted it's always interesting you know when you see you you get this bucks on camera during the summer and they've got this big bellies and they're you know 190 200 210 pounds and then if someone shoots that same buck in November or December I mean it looks like they weigh 150 pounds you know they're 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 they're, they're just so much smaller so yeah I would rather shoot them a little bit earlier um you gotta wonder as far as the meat quality I, I can't speak on that but I can speak early season has better fat you get some of that better, you know, some of that good early season fat, which real good, not that hard, you know, deer fat, but some of that good outside fat can be good. Um, but you know, I as far as shooting does, I would rather shoot all my does early season. It doesn't always happen. Actually, it never happens because we can't. It's just it's just we can never shoot enough uh, uh, enough does. But if you think about it, you know it, it kind of goes back to guys that want to shoot the does later in the season. It's like, I get their thinking. Um, and some people can can legitimately do it if they're in a density that's maybe, I don't know, 20, 30 deer per square mile. But if you're in a high-density area like we are in South Carolina, it's going to be extremely challenging because the number of does that you need to shoot is not obtainable. One, you know, I, I think one of the best selling points is that, so let's say you've got 10 does in your property and you're, you know, there's 10 does and you're going to kill 10 does. So if you shoot them before the rut, you know, those, those mouths are off the landscape then, but if you shoot them at the very end of the season, they have, you know, they've been eating that entire season. So like your food, your fall food plots, you know, the acorns, all that stuff you're doing, you're putting money into you've got deer that are consuming it, that you were planning and, and that you are going to kill anyways, it, you know, as opposed to the deer that you're going to leave in the landscape. So it's just a little bit more food left out there. And of course I hear all the time about, you know, hat leaving the does, not messing with them until after rut so they can track the bucks. So my, yeah, I listen, I, we did that for a couple of seasons early on. And and so my comment with that would be, as I said, like, so I would say is that what is someone's deer per square mile? How much deer what's their, what's their, um, how much deer do they have with the farm? Like how much deer are they talking about? Because if they don't know, then that's why I use that example earlier. If you're in like a lower density area, it could be attainable. And maybe you want that, but if you're in a higher density area, like a lot of the South is where you're, way over 50 or 60 per square mile that's not obtainable and and on top of that you're also not gonna shoot every doe it's not possible so but but i I can attest to this and i mentioned this earlier about how we were going through some phases around like 2018 2019 we were getting these bucks on camera we were watching them get these cans so all of a sudden you start to hunt these bucks you're hunting for them you pass them on does you pass them on does Next thing you know, you've gone a year or two without killing enough does. So bucks that you want to kill, you're not going to see them, is because there's there you've got way too many does, and there's you know does out any given time. There's does out in the field, there's does in thickets, and so where do you think bucks are going to go? They're they're going to they're going to be in those thickets, and so you're not going to see the bucks, and that's why you know a lot of these biologists when they talk about you start shooting does, you'll one you will it's interesting. It's like, and I'm not going to go down that tangent, but when you take mouths off the landscape, you grow bigger antlers, you grow healthier deer. The does are healthier. The fawns are healthier. The antlers are bigger and better. And when you, when you have, you know, some people say, you know, I, I want to be able to see 10, 10, 20 deer in a given hunt. That's going to be a lot of does. And that's, and that's just not very healthy. So, um, you know, taking them, it, 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 if when you thin them out, you're gonna the box are gonna move so much better, and they're gonna, and they're gonna, and you're gonna be able to see them,
0: yeah, absolutely. You know, that's um, well, the one of the first detailed conversations I had about that was with uh, I want to say it was uh, um, uh, Matt is, Di, is Matt Die, yeah, with uh, and Legacy, mm-hmm. he was on yeah, the podcast nice a couple years ago. And we had this conversation, and he mm-hmm. he really explained also, like you said, you can't kill all the does, and more than likely your neighbors are not going to be doing the exact same thing you are. And this natural dispersion or uh, uh, dispersal of doe groups and just does in general, they're they're always trying to try to find the next best food source. And if you kill a bunch of does on your property, especially we're talking private land hunters here, um, you kill a bunch of does in your property, there's still does around you. Like, you might have killed what you thought was on your property, but they, they're they not living on just that 50 or 100 acres or a couple hundred acres. You're going to have deer naturally dispersed onto that property in addition to that. So that's why it's truly, unless, you know, everybody in the county was trying to shoot every single doe they had the opportunity of, which is highly unlikely that's ever gonna happen.
2: <laughs> I wish that would happen. <laughs> yeah, it,
0: it, it's 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 not gonna be a situation where you're necessarily running out of deer in these high density areas. Again, if you're in an area where yeah. it's six or seven deer per square mile, that's a little bit different situation versus where you're talking about and where we're at too, where you have fairly high deer numbers, extremely high deer numbers in a lot of places. Um, to the point that you're not making a dent. Like, you don't have enough bullets or enough arrows uh, on, on a property because, uh, you know, it seems like, especially, and maybe you can kind of relate with this, uh, depending, on like, you know, you, maybe your dad or, you know, whoever you kind of grew up hunting with, a lot of those guys that grew up in the 60s and 70s where there wasn't a lot of deer, especially in some of these areas, uh, especially where mm-hmm. we're at, they had the mindset like they don't want to shoot a lot of does now because they knew back when it wasn't great, when there was not a lot of deer. And, and that mindset's still out there with a lot of people. And I'm sure some of our listeners are the same way. You know, that mindset that, you know, but there wasn't a lot of deer back then, so we are trying to conserve all the does, and we're just shooting bucks only. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, you know, some of the public land that we hunt, you know, when it comes to rifle opportunities, we have very limited rifle opportunities. They have very specific weeks and weekends that you can actually hunt mm-hmm. during rifle season. Um, and they only allow maybe a, one or two of those hunts a whole year during rifle season to actually shoot does. All the other ones is buck only. So unless you have a lot of guys out there with archery equipment killing a lot of does, which really doesn't happen when you look at deer getting checked in, it's very few and far between. Oh, you yeah. have a, an abundance of does and you kind of have that situation we're running into now, like what you're talking about, that you don't see a lot of those mature bucks covering the ground as often because they have does in every little thicket. They're, they're tied up for the whole season, you know, when it comes to the rut. And, you know, there are big bucks get killed. You know, we've had opportunities. you know, killed some of those deer, you know, Scott Sales and some of these other guys have killed some of those bucks. But it, it makes it, as you're saying, more challenging when you have that many more deer out there and also that many more mouths to feed on the landscape.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, p- people, sometimes I think people get a, a little too down that road of like, oh, well, when bucks or in the rut, they're not thinking. They got blinders on, they're just going to step out on the highway, and it's like, well, they will do that, but they're still smart about it. So, I mean, if they're going to chase deer on a field or chase deer in a thicket, and it an older buck that's wise and smart, he's going to be in that thicket. He, he's not going to go out in the field, so that plays into it, and you know, going back to shooting does and doe numbers, it, that's always good to kind of talk with your neighbors or kind of fill your neighbors out. Or if you don't want to get to know them, just pay attention to them. Pay attention t- to the shots you hear, them coming and going. Because a lot of people, you know, a lot of people hunt, but a lot of people, they're not killing enough does, at least in my area of South Carolina, people aren't killing enough does as they should be. But it is. at a certain point, it gets to be work. And it really is if you're trying to do it. But it goes back to what I was saying earlier about if someone starts talking about how, what they should do with those, I would say, well, what is your population? What's your density? And then from there, it's like, okay, well, what's your following recruitment rate? And it's like, well, you know, I don't know. It's like, well, you know, if you're keeping QDM style records, it's not hard down the skinning shed, you know um, what, you know, lactation and maintaining a hunter observational log. If, if you're a public land hunter, it could happen. <laughs> If all the public hunters would want to share what they saw, but of course that's not going to happen. But but you know, hunt clubs should do it. You got your you got your harvest log, all the data you you extract from that dead deer, and then the hunter observational, which means trying to break it down how many does, fawns, spikes, all that, and from that you can create um, a fawn recruitment. And so with that, you know how many fawn recruitment, how many fawns are living to the hunting season based on that, you know, how many deer have been replaced. So you have to shoot that same amount. So if you want to be even, of course, there's, I forget the percentage you want to factor in for just like natural death a um, occurrence, but you've got to figure that number out if you're managing a problem, but how many deer you need to kill just to maintain that average. And then if you're going to lower the population, you got to go above that. And so what we deal with up here is that you know, a lot of people hunt in the South and, but you know, every property is not hunted, even though we're in this insane, you know, it's like East of the Mississippi is by far the most hunters in the entire country is East of the Mississippi, mostly in the South. Um, but you know, every property is not being hunted and, you know, some hunters only want to shoot a buck, maybe a doe for like freezer meat. Um, I mean, like my family, for instance, my household, we eat venison all the time. We probably only eat four or five, you know a year. So killing those people have to do something with um, and um, so it it's it, and I tell you something else I've been noticing is ever since this you know 2020. maybe all seeing in Alabama, but the forestry market for timber cut cutting trees has really picked up. There's been a lot of kind of backlog properties um that are being cut. And so with that, it's like what I'm noticing is I'm seeing all those clear cuts around here, and that in a couple of years, those clear cuts are gonna be thickets. And they're just gonna be strongholds for deer. And all that's doing is just it's just creating more thickets, which means there's gonna be more fawns surviving, and this and that's gonna, you know, increase the increase the deer population.
0: And see, that's so crazy that you know not crazy, but it's it's so interesting to have this conversation because more people than not that we talk to would want to have more deer on the landscape. Just from their, you know, you're talking to private yeah, public yeah. land guys, and I think they they mean more bucks on the landscape. Maybe not does, but more bucks, <laughs> of course. But it, it's interesting, you know. You're looking at a lot of this stuff, and you're like, dude, this is terrible. You know, all these cuts coming in, we're gonna have even more deer than we're already dealing with now, and we need to lower that number, uh, not increase that number on your property. Give those bucks and and also also those other deer that survive a healthier op- opportunity in order to put on more weight, put on more mass, put on more uh you know antler potential, all that kind of stuff. Um and it's hard to do that when you have, you know, 75 other mouths to feed, you know, on a property uh or in a general area. So, um that is a very interesting dynamic that is I think this is the first time we've ever heard that in podcast. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, which so. is great, oh, yeah, I mean, which is awesome. Cuz I don't think we talked about that with Matt on the podcast, did we? Uh, that that might have been an, afterward conversation yeah, maybe yeah. i can't remember yeah
2: and, and like one that one of the telltale signs is that if you're having trouble growing a food plot if you're having trouble keeping the deer out for the food plot whatever it is to get established you know meaning that they come in just snip off that bean plant at a young stage where it's cached if you're having that problem if you're having to do tactics to keep the deer out just to get established so they can feed on it you know rope system Uh, there's different kinds of, you know, electric fence, fence, you're, if you're, if you're having to do that, you've got a lot of deer, um, that maybe you need a better habitat, maybe you need to burn. But even then, I mean, it's, it's, um, I I read something a month ago, it was last, so the state of South Carolina, um, there's, there's an estimate of $30 million worth of damage, crop damage for soybeans alone annually, in South Carolina, just soybeans. And there's cotton fields around here that are just, it looks like someone took a bush hog to it, clipped down. So it, it's, its you know, those areas, if you're seeing, uh, you know, people can learn a lot from like farmers or paying attention, reading kind of that kind of stuff. If you're seeing that kind of um, articles and data, you, you're, you're in a high-density area. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually great hunting, but if you're really trying to – grow that next level of buck and with the antlers and that health you've really got to dial in on the on the herd
0: yeah absolutely well awesome mark i'll I'll say this i think we're gonna have to have you back on maybe talk a little more details about some of this and actually uh, what i thought about get him and get get, uh mark and alan on oh that'd be interesting that because i I think there'd be a lot of like interesting connections there yeah um so, but, uh, Mark, I appreciate you joining the podcast yeah, uh, real, real quick. To be y- you've got your own podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, if people want to listen to you and kind of get some more of your thoughts on the stuff and some of the interviews that you've done on your podcast, uh, you know, how can guys find your podcast, give us the name of the podcast. And also how can guys follow along with you on, on social media as well, in case they want to maybe ask you any individual questions.
2: Yes. Yeah, so if people can find me, I'm on, um, um, Instagram as uh, at Mark Haslam, um, M-A-R-K-H-A-S-L-A-M. And then I started Southeast Whitetail. Um, I guess I was just bored during COVID. It was just being home. <laughs> and, you know, I tell you what it was, is just I my Instagram, if you go scroll all the way back, just like everybody else, it was like, you know, dog photos and just, you know, like concert photos. And then all of a sudden I started to kind of showcase more about what I do here at the farm, you know, hunting stuff and management stuff and all that. And so um, that the Instagram was kind of my outlet. And then I wanted to just really kind of show more uh, mainly because of, you know, there's not many outlets like yourself. There's not there's not much, that much media content. Most of the quote hunting content that everyone goes to does not apply to the South. So um, I started dot southeastwhitetail.com. Uh, it's a website write some articles for um and that morphed into my wife bought this microphone for me because i was doing some guest spots on some podcast and then um i just i was like you know i'm just gonna try it and i and i recorded one and i and i liked it i like i like to talk about this if someone can't tell um so that's what it is so uh it's southeast it's at southeast dot whitetail because i I went through a bunch of names I wanted to do. And there's like five different Southeast whitetails and different reincarnations, but they're all like defunct. You know, there's like Instagram accounts where like they have not touched in like five, 10 years. So it's southeast.whitetail. And that's how people can find me. Awesome. I, I mostly focus on my three, three focal points, habitat, conservation, venison. So really just, you know, bet, better than land, conservation, and then, you know, venison, wild game. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Mark, we greatly appreciate you listeners. If you've enjoyed
0: this video, again, video podcast is on YouTube, uh, you know, always write in, but also if you've enjoyed listening to it, make sure you share this with a buddy. Uh, again, we love having guys on like Mark that are willing to share some knowledge, share some experience. And, you know, the one thing we could ask from you guys is to share the show with your buddies. It just, it just helps out tremendously with the show. Uh, also, um, you know, make sure you tune in for this week's outro. I think we got a lot to talk about with this episode because, uh, again, there's things that we've heard on this episode that haven't really been discussed in this kind of format before uh at least on our show which we we're super excited to break down but listeners thank y'all for joining us viewers thank y'all for joining us and mark appreciate you as well and we'll catch everybody back on the next episode of the southern outdoorsman podcast
2: thanks for having me on appreciate it
1: All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? the Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. We're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast. This show was Literally made for you. It is an excellent group of people that are going to be there. A lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there. You're going to get to talk to them, shake their hand, learn from them in person, make some connections. And guys, we get a lot of questions about hey, which saddle should I get? Which tree stand should I get? What about this piece of gear? What about that piece of gear? How do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.